Our scripture this morning is from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Amen. So ends the reading of God's Word. Let us pray together. Oh God, we thank you for your Word that you've revealed yourself to us, and we ask now that you would speak to us through it. Pray you'd give us the mind of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. During these weeks of a shelter at home, which have lasted now almost two months, uh, it's been a time when, when many of us, if not perhaps most of us, can use some encouragement. Uh, encouragement, as we looked at last week and we'll be looking at today and for the next couple of weeks, is not the responsibility just of a few Christians, not of the, the gifted handful, but it is the responsibility and the privilege of every believer. Every Christian can be and every Christian should be an encourager. Now, if you and I are to encourage others, we must first see that it is our responsibility to do so. Last week, we considered Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, that ended with the words, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me show you how this played out in the life of a young man who grew up in severe poverty uh, years ago in the state of Mississippi. His name is Dolphus Weary. I've never met Dolphus, but I've read about him for years. As a young African-American, Dolphus experienced firsthand the terrible effects of the racism of that era. And his father abandoned uh, Dolphus's mother. Uh, it was a family of eight children. Abandoned them when Dolphus was only about five years old. And his mother sharecropped and, and did everything she could to be able to afford to put food on the table for her large family. And by the time Dolphus reached his adolescence, he had come to believe, and I quote, that no matter what I do, no matter how hard I work, I will always be second class. The system is rigged against me, and I'll always make just enough to get by, but never enough to get ahead. He said, that's the way it is here, and it's never going to change. Dolphus Weary is a young man determined that if he ever got a chance, he would leave Mississippi and never return. He assumed that he was destined for a life of menial labor, but God had other plans in store for Dolphus Weary. And the turning point ironically came during a high school basketball game. His high school team was playing another local team at that school. So they were playing this game on the other team's home court. 
And he describes it this way. He wrote, At halftime, we were beating them on their own court, 45 to 12. 45 to 12. He said it was a joke. So they asked if their coach could play with them. He had been a star player at Mississippi's largest black college. And we said, sure. Ten minutes into the second half, it was a whole new ball game. Their coach scored again and again. And their players were getting excited and gaining momentum. The home court crowd was screaming with excitement as their player coach cut our lead from 45 to 12 to where there was only a two-point difference. With 30 seconds left in the game, they called timeout. The desire was for him to be able to hold the ball and wait till the clock ran down and take the last shot. So we went into a man-to-man defense. Since I'd always thought I was a good defensive player, I wanted him. I knew that the one thing that he wanted more than anything else was to make that shot, tie the score, and send the game into overtime. He dodged left. I was there. He looked around for a chance to pass. No way. He dribbled down the court. I was right on him. The clock ticked down to five seconds. When he finally went for the shot, I went up with him because I was a great jumper. He had to change his shot in midair, and the ball hit the rim and bounced away. The crowd went wild. But Dolphus continues to write, and he said, but then something incredible happened. As we were heading for the locker room, the coach for the other team came up and put his hand on my shoulder and said, have you ever thought about playing college ball? I was stunned. I thought he was joking. But when I looked into his eyes, I could tell that he was serious. And the significant thing was that the touch on my shoulder, just a real sense of confidence and respect he communicated to me. My own coach had never said or done anything like that. But I I immediately started thinking all kinds of excuses why it could not happen. Me? No way. I'm too short. And I don't have a very good outside jump shot. And I'd have to switch to guard. And, and, and I was going down my list of objections. But the coach kept telling me that there in the hall that I should think about college basketball. And for the first time in my life, I started feeling that maybe I did have what it, take, what it would take to play college ball. And if I did, it might pay my tuition. That coach asked one simple question. Have you ever thought about playing college ball? Now, it was a question that anyone could have asked, but no one else did. Until God brought this man, this other coach for the opposing team, into Dolphus's path. That single question prompted a chain of events that God used to change Dolphus's future to include college and a lot more. The Apostle Paul was in prison when he writes the, the letter to the Philippian Christians. He was in forced social distancing. And the occasion was that his Christian brother named Epaphroditus had brought a generous gift from the church in Philippi. And with the generous gift, he brought some good news and he brought some bad news. The good news was what great affection the church had for the Apostle Paul and they wanted to encourage him there as he served time. 
But the bad news was that there was a division in that church back in Philippi due to false teaching. And so in this letter, Paul is writing back to them to give them some instruction. And here he talks about how they should encourage one another. And he describes four resources for encouragement that Christ gives to all believers in His church. I'll just mention them briefly right from the text beginning in verse 1. The first resource, he says, that there is encouragement from being united in Christ. The word here for encouragement is a word that communicates the idea of a support. It's an architectural term. And it referred to these supportive brackets that would hold up an arch or a cornice. This is the support that Jesus Christ gives to His followers in love. That He comes alongside of us and He helps us and encourages us and exhorts us and He shores us up and He strengthens us. This is the support that He gives us. We don't ask for it. He gives it to us as believers in His church. The second resource, first goes, the verse goes on, it says, if there's comfort from His love. We are comforted by the fact that He loves us and therefore we can comfort others. A long time ago I read a book about a, a Christian marriage. Uh, well, I assume it was Christian. It was written by a Christian. But she had been married to a, uh, a Christian celebrity. And the marriage didn't last long. And the book describes that. But she gave tribute to a person I was acquainted with that she and her husband were at a large convention and they were having marriage problems. They, and they asked this, this man, this, this author I was aware of, to come and meet with them. And he sat down with them in their, in their hotel room and, and talked to them and they described for him the problems they were having. And after he listened to them for a while and he thought he had a good grasp of the situation, all he said at that time was, you two do not know how to love one another. You don't know how to love each other. Uh, and there was a lot of truth to that, she said. They had not grown up in environments and, and been taught uh, how to enter into a marriage where they could love one another. Well, here, Christ gives us His love, and we gain comfort from that. And that's a resource that enables us to love others. The third resource of the four, he says, if there is participation or fellowship in the Holy Spirit. As we come to faith in Christ, we are in Him, and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us, not only individually, but corporately as a local body. And it stimulates, He stimulates unity among us. We are made one by the Spirit, and so we can be partners in the gospel because He made us for each other. The fourth resource of the four, He says, if there is an experience of the affection and sympathy of God, so by the fact that God has shown affection to us, He's shown sympathy to us rather than harshness and sternness and condemnation, we therefore can do the same for others. So we take those four resources that are described there in the first verse, and since we have these resources, now we're to do some, some things to build unity. First, He says, be of the same mind. That's unity of purpose. There's all the difference in the world between unity and uniformity, and often people confuse the two. Uniformity is saying the same things, maybe dressing the same way, looking the same way. Y unity is unity of purpose. You can have uniformity, and, and it's, it's a masquerade in that there's no unity. 
There's no unity of purpose. You can manipulate people into uniformity. But unity of purpose, the people may look very diverse, even in their opinions and their ideas and their their manner of speech and so forth, but they are about the same purpose. Our purpose is the Great Commission, to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So that is the purpose He has given to us, to glorify Him. We are to do that. So we have the unity of of a, a unified purpose, and that gives us the ability to encourage one another. Secondly, in verse 3, he says, Don't be rivals and conceited. We're not to act out of selfish ambition. A lot of people get confused at this point. Does that mean ambition is a bad thing? No, ambition can be a very good thing. Some people say, well, the Bible teaches you should be content. Well, if you're content, does that mean you should not be ambitious? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means what type of ambitions we have. Maybe your ambition, uh, imagine how many young people may go into health care as a result of what we're experiencing now. Imagine the vaccines and things that will help people that will be discovered in the future. Uh, Equipment that may be built and so forth. So there are proper ambitions that we can glorify God with those to accomplish things for His glory. But what's being condemned here, what brings disunity, is selfish ambition. That is an ambition that only desires to prop up oneself. And that self-centered ambition will always cause disunity. It will do it in a family. It will definitely do it in a church. Third, what we are to do is in humility, we're to count others as more significant and important than yourself. In Paul's day, in the pagan world of the Apostle Paul's day, humility was seen as something ugly. It was never to be aspired to. And it was certainly never to be admired. And yet God commends humility as we properly understand it. And He chooses humble people to do His work. God hears the prayers of the downcast and the needy. And He reveals Himself to those who humble themselves before Him. But what is it? What is humility? It's the opposite of self-centeredness. It's not necessarily shyness or introversion or insecurity. Those may be the opposite of humility. But it's knowing who you are and the source of your strength. That's a humble person. John the Baptist was a humble person. When he came preaching a baptism of repentance, uh, he was asked by the religious leaders, Are you Elijah? No. Are you the Messiah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Who are you? They asked. And he said, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the ways of the Lord. John the Baptist was a humble man. He knew who he was and the source of his strength. It's for that reason that that John Calvin said, true knowledge consists in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. So what Paul means here is that our consideration for others must precede the concern we have for ourselves. And this is what builds unity and encouragement. We are to think of others in the body of Christ, others in the church, as superior to us for the simple reason that we don't know hearts. Let me, let me explain. It may surprise you to know that uh, uh, I can think of a man right now who is the worst sinner that I know. And, and he lives here in Macon. And you may think that sounds judgmental, 
that may sound presumptuous. How, how would you, preacher, know that? Who are you to make a statement like that? No, without question, this is the worst sinner I know. I see him every day. Uh, I see him at work. I see him when I at, at church. Uh, I see him when I'm doing various things. In fact, I see him in the mirror the first thing in the morning. He is the worst sinner I know. You may be saying, well, Chip, how do you think that you're the worst sinner? No, listen, I'm the worst sinner I know. I don't know the sins of other people. I I can see a few things in public or what someone may may tell me, but I see my sin and even only a portion of that from the actions to the motivations to the uh, sin behind the sin to the insecurity and the lust and all those things that form that. So this humility, I should look at that and say, by comparison, I am a worse sinner than others. The last thing he mentions, don't look out for your own interests before the interest of others. So what Paul is calling for is not just a complete denial of your own interest, but that that your concern, Christian concern, and in the local body is wide enough and broad enough to include others in its scope. In problems of disunity, when we begin to think that way, disunity will disappear. If you are to encourage others, you must sense the urgency to do so. In the right, when that writer of Hebrews said that we're to encourage one another as we see the day drawing near, um, he was saying that time is limited, so we should take the opportunity, like that coach did in Dolphus Weary's life, to ask him, have you thought about playing college ball? In fact, let me go back and tell you what happened after that. The coach asked him that one simple question after that game, have you ever thought about playing college ball? And as I said, it was a question anyone could have asked that young man, but, but no one did until this man was brought by God into Dolphus's path. So that single question prompted a chain of events. It took Dolphus to college. And although he had vowed never to return to Mississippi, God had other plans. After he graduated from college, he entered a master's degree in Christian education at a Christian college in Los Angeles. And, but in the summers, he would return to Mendenhall, Mississippi to work with the ministry of John Perkins. It was also there that he met his future wife, He went on and completed not only that master's degree, but another, and he toured Asia with an evangelistic basketball team that was sponsored by Overseas Crusades. And it was there, while he was ministering in Asia, that God called him to return to Mississippi and to serve with Mendenhall Ministries. And since then, thousands, thousands of lives have been affected for the gospel through Dolphus Weary's leadership and ministry. And it all began with that coach's simple question of encouragement. Have you ever thought about playing college ball? There are people around you uh, like Dolphus. Who needs encouragement? They need someone to spur them on to love and good deeds. We can do that with the resources God has given us in Christ. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you that you've given us the resources as believers in Christ to have unity, to have unity of purpose, to say encouraging words to one another, and to put the needs of others before ourselves. This is very unnatural for us, so we thank you for the resources.
of the encouragement that we have in Christ, of the unity that we have in the Holy Spirit, and the support that we have that holds us up. So we pray that you would be honored in our individual lives and relationships with others, in our families, and especially in our local churches. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.